right, let's hear it. It's so good to see you, Hume. If you brought your Bibles, please open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's been so good to be together and look to God's Word to try to sift through and understand what can so often be a complicated and difficult life. And I'm so thankful for a place in God's Word that meets us right in that place that answers questions that we are actually asking, that identifies with experiences that we are actually having. I hope and pray that this has been helpful to you so far, and I am excited for Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and what it holds for us tonight. I want to ask you to try to guess who it is I am talking about. I'm going to start with one that's going to be challenging for some of the young people. Guess, see if you can guess who this is describing. A troubled kid from South Boston works menial jobs and keeps getting in trouble with the law. This kind of kid, this kid, this kid from South Boston, he overnight as working as a janitor at MIT solves a borderline impossible math problem that is left on a chalkboard. What's his name? Shout it out. Will Hunting. That's Will Hunting from Goodwill Hunting. Here's another one. This one might be a little easier for all all you young people. An optimistic scavenger, you tuned in here? An optimistic scavenger from the streets of Paris tries to reconcile his extraordinarily sophisticated palate and dreams of being a gourmet chef with the fact that he is a rat. Remy from Ratatouille. It's Remy from Ratatouille. Great job, guys. Great job. Okay, one more, one more, one more. Are you with me? Are you with me? Everybody lock in. One more. See if you can guess this. Jesus! Nope. A poor slave boy from the desert planet of Tatooine with a prodigious skill. Hey, everyone be quiet! With a prodigious skill in pod racing, dreams of winning his freedom and exploring the galaxy. Yes. It is Anakin Skywalker from which movie? Star Wars episode what? One. Star Wars episode one, The Phantom Menace. Okay. Now listen. Here's the question. Here's the question. What do, what do... A math genius, a culinary rodent, and a young Jedi all have in common. Here's what they have in common. Okay, question and answer time is over. Okay, my turn. I'm just kidding. What do they all have in common? Here's what they have in common. If you follow the narrative of each of these movies, here's what's going on. You, You meet each of these characters at a time in their life when they are realizing that something inside of them is out of sync with the things around them. The situation that they find themselves in feels like something's wrong, and they were they they have this desire, they have these dreams and these hopes and these visions, and they're living in these very limited and small circumstances, but they have a longing for more. Every single one of these characters believes somewhere deep down inside that they were made for more than they are experiencing. That's what these movies are all about. And you and I 
if we confine ourselves to thinking of our lives as only what happens in the here and now, we find ourselves with the same restless inclination. There's got to be more than just this. There's got to be more than just living and dying and going to school and getting a paycheck and getting married and having kids and I, I, I live my life and then it's over and I die and it meant nothing. We, we actually find that way of thinking intolerable, which is why the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is so jarring when we read it. Because the book opens and Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And there's something deep inside of us that protests against that idea and says, it cannot be. There's no way that this experience I have is meaningless. There's no way that it's just a vapor and it's here and it's gone and it doesn't mean anything. We ache, we long very deeply for meaning. We know deep down inside that we were made for more. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is going to describe exactly what that more is. And so I want to, I want to read it together the first 11 verses of it. So let's remember as I read these words out loud that these are the very words of God. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I want to begin with you at this this series of couplets that begins Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verse 1 says, For everything there is a season. There is an appropriate time that has been allotted for every matter under heaven, he says. And then he proceeds to describe, he, he gives us these 14 couplets. And, and these 14 couplets, they give kind of the polar opposite experiences in each of the categories that they talk about. These are events and emotions and experiences and this poem, we're not going to spend a ton of time digging into it, but what it's intended to convey is the full range of human experience, the things that you and I walk through and the things that every human being on planet Earth experiences, that there are different times and seasons of our lives where we experience and feel and go through and do different things. And when he says a time to be born and a time to die, and when he says a time to gather and a time to scatter, when he's, when he's saying there's this experience over here and there's this experience over here, he's intending to encapsulate the full spectrum of what we experience. 
And the longer you live, the longer you realize that this is what life is like, that there are highs and there are lows. There are light moments and there are dark moments. There are heavy moments and there are joyful moments. And there is everything in between. This is our experience as human beings. Uh, Just about a year ago at our church, there was a young couple that had gotten saved. They met Jesus in our church, and they got baptized in our church, and then they got engaged, and they were getting ready to be married. And about two weeks before I was going to officiate their wedding, the, gr- the bride's or the groom's dad unexpectedly died. And it was really sad. And what we realized was that just so close to the wedding, having to plan a funeral, we realized that all of their family was coming in from all around town, all ready to attend this wedding in about two weeks' time. And so with that precious family that's part of our church, we got all of their family together, and on Friday, we buried their dad, and on Saturday, we married this young couple. And it was like this, this very tight window of this this summary, this encapsulation of what life is like. That's what life is. Life is living and dying. Life is marrying and burying, and it is everything in between. That's what this poem is intended to convey, is this reality of our human experience. That's life. But the question that cries out, that has been crying out all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes is, what's the point of it all? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we are born and that we die? Why does it matter that we mourn and we laugh and we kill and we heal and we break down and we build up? Why does all of this matter? And that's what Solomon asks in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? What does all of this matter? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then he says, he says this. This is what he gets to. He's, he's asking, are, are we just made to laugh and cry and live and die, and then it's all over and it means nothing? And Solomon says, no. No, praise God, we are made for more. And so the question I want to ask and answer tonight is, what is the more that we are made for? If there's more beyond just this life, and the things we go through, and the things we experience, the things we do, and the things that are done to us, and the lifetime of events, whether short or long, and then we die, and it's over, and it means nothing. If there's more beyond that, then what is that more? And that's what just these next couple verses are going to explain to us. And so I want to unpack this in three ways like this. First, we are made, number one, we are made by an eternal God. We are made by an eternal God. I want to talk to you tonight about time, but first we have to understand what time is. Because part of the frustration that is being addressed here in Ecclesiastes is that there's got to be something beyond time, beyond the experience of time that we have. So we got to begin by answering this question, what is time? Well, here's a simple definition. Time is a sequence of moments that contains events. Time is a sequence of moments and we, we understand that kind of innately, right? Because we mark time based on the movement of these celestial bodies that we represent on these little clocks with the numbers or the ticking hands. And we understand that time is like a conveyor belt that just keeps moving. And what time does is it takes moments from the, the future and it makes them moments in the present. And it takes moments in the present and makes them moments in the past. And the conveyor belt just keeps on going and going and going and going. But as 
limited, finite creatures. We can neither live in the future nor in the past. We are stuck right here in the present moment. We can't run up the conveyor belt. We can't run down the conveyor belt. We are subject to time, which means we stand still in our created finite limitation while the conveyor belt of time just goes by and the future becomes the present and the present becomes the past. That's what time, that's what time is. Time is moving and there is nothing we can do to stop it. We are bound by it and we are bound in it. There's actually no other way for us to exist. We are time-bound creatures, but God is not. God is not a time-bound creature. God is not subject to the conveyor belt of time, but rather God stands outside of time. God stands above and superintends and oversees time, and the reason we know that is because God created time. Think about this for just, just a moment. God is not bound by time. Rather, God is eternal. This is the God who made us. He's an eternal God. He exists outside of time, and yet he chooses to interact within time. And the very first way that he chose to interact within time is he created time. That's why Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, that, that little phrase there is, Before the beginning began. So the Bible is doing its very best way to relate to you that there was, if you can abide by what feels contradictory, there was a time when there was no time. And there was only God. There was no space. There was no matter. There was no time. There was only God. And out of his creative power, he decided to speak into existence everything that is, and that includes time and space and matter. And by virtue of the fact that he is the one who spoke it into existence, he stands over top of it and he rules and reigns. And where we have to begin as we think about this idea of like, man, we are born and we die and we build up and we tear down and we gather and we scatter. We've got this succession of moments in our lives and things that we experience and yet we long for something outside of that. Where we need to begin in our understanding is that we were created by an eternal being. We were created by an eternal God. And this is, a, this is a big deal. And the reason is because we often judge the value and quality of something based on who created it, based on who made it. That's why we want phones from Apple, and we want sneakers from Jordan, and we want watches from Rolex, and we want cars from Bentley. Why? Because who made it speaks to the quality of the item itself. And you and I, we were created by the eternal God who spoke everything into existence. And what the Bible says is that we are created in his image. So yes, we are time-bound creatures and we are finite creatures. But what the Bible reveals to us is there are these little glimmers. There are these ways that we are like the one who made us. We are like the God who spoke us into existence. And this text is going to give us a very powerful expression of that. You, not just humankind in general, you, individually, you were made by an eternal God. And this eternal God is not far away. He is not detached. He's not uninterested. 
He's not forgotten about you. In fact, he is intricately involved in the details of the times and the seasons of your life. And that's why Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God is not like a creator that spoke everything into existence and then released it, stepped back from it, and is uninterested in engaging with it. God is the kind of creator who is intimately and intricately involved in his creation. And so when he created humankind, men and women in his image, he created them so that he could be involved in the lives of those he created. And this text says on the back end of that poem that gives us those 14 poles of experience, that those are not, those are not random happenstance, those are not by chance or fate, those come to us from the hand of a sovereign, omnipotent, eternal God who makes everything beautiful in its time, who has a purpose for every single season that we go through. Some of you, as you read that, that list, that, those, those couplets, that poem, you you are actually feeling and maybe even walking through some of the seasons that are described there. Perhaps you come to Hume and you are soaring on cloud nine and this is the best season of life you have ever had. You feel comfortable and secure and loved and provided for and happy. But I know that there are others of you who carry heavy burdens into this weekend. Some of you are here, and just recently, you have lost loved ones. You are in the place of mourning and loss and death and grief. And this says that God sees you in that season, and he cares about it. You were made by an eternal God. He knows you, he sees you, he loves you, and he wants to be intimately involved in the things that are going on in your life. And so this text goes on to describe not just the fact that we were made by a sovereign God who oversees every season of our lives and is intimately involved in it, but he's actually created us to be aware of that fact. We are made, number one, by an eternal God, but number two, we are made with an eternal longing. This is the longing that we're talking about in this entire message. Verse 11 goes on to say this, also, this God who makes everything beautiful in its time, this God has put eternity in man's heart. He has put eternity into man's heart. Now, that is, a, that is a wild phrase for the Bible to say. Like, I don't know if you're reading your Bible, and every once in a while you come across a phrase like this, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? That's crazy. How is it possible that the eternal, omnipotent, giant, majestic, infinite God has put eternity into the hearts of finite, tiny men and women like us? And what does that even mean? What does that mean? Well, here's simply what it means. 
For God to put eternity into the hearts of men and women like you and me, it means this, that we are hardwired. We are hardwired. We are built with an awareness of and a longing for eternal things. We, we, are, we are creatures that are bound by time, but wired for forever. We're, we're bound by time, but we're wired for forever. We live and die. We're, we're subject to the conveyor belt of moments, and we cannot possibly escape it. And yet there's something inside of us that aches for that which lasts forever. God put it in us. He made us this way that we would long for and have a deep desire for that which is eternal. C.S. Lewis has such a helpful metaphor for this. And I'm gonna, I want to read this little paragraph to you that he wrote. Track with me as C.S. Lewis helps us to understand this eternal longing that we have. He says, a man's physical hunger does not prove that a man will get any bread he may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, but surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes from a race that repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable things exist. Now here he connects the dots for us. In the same way, though I do not believe, though I wish I did, that my desire for paradise proves that I will enjoy it, I think it is a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some people will. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, from the time that you're born as a human being, you experience hunger. And that hunger testifies inside of you that food exists. Because there is something, there's got to be something out there to satisfy this physical hunger that you have. And in the same way, C.S. Lewis is helping us to understand what Ecclesiastes 3.11 teaches. That every human being that has ever lived is hungry for eternity. It's hungry for the things of God. Hungry for that which lasts forever. We know deep within us that there is life beyond death. And we have a sense in some way that we are going to exist forever. We, we deeply long to know what that means. And how we can taste it. And why it matters. This is one of the reasons I believe that you and I were so, were so restless at times. That our life just feels like this agonized journey from one place and one thing and one relationship and one pursuit to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and we can never settle down and we can never be satisfied and we can never figure it out and we can never get it all squared away. Why? Because we're trying to satisfy ourselves with temporal things that can never do the job. So if you find within yourself this restlessness, this agonizing, this ache, Perhaps the things that you have been trying to fill the hole in your heart, they don't fit there. They're inadequate for the job. They will not do the trick. Why? Because we are made by an eternal God and we are made with an eternal longing. We're made to long for these things, these things of God. And so the question comes on the heels of that metaphor that C.S. Lewis gave us. If food can satisfy our hunger then what can satisfy our eternal longing? Because you're like, okay, I'm with you, Nick. I got it. 
God made us, and he's an eternal God. And because he made us in his image, he made us with this echo, this imprint of things that last forever. And then he's given us this this eternity-sized hole in our hearts that needs to be filled by something. The question is, what is that thing? Because if you're like me, and you're like, man, I've tried it. I've tried to find it in relationships with other people. I've tried to find it in material things. I've tried to find it in success. I've tried to find it in pleasure. I've tried to find it in information, and none of it has worked. So what is it? Well, we were made by an eternal God with an eternal longing, and we were made for eternal relationship. We were made for eternal relationship. You see, God made you. This is part of what it means that you were made in his image. He made you as a relational creature. You cannot exist apart from relationships. You and I, we are relational beings. And the relational quality of our lives is the determining factor of how we are doing. It's our relationships. It's the most important thing that we have. The biggest impact on your development as a kid is your relationship with your parents. The the longing that you have in your heart that all of us have, no matter your age, is a deep desire for relationship with friends. You want people to know you and love you. You ache for it. You you hurt when you don't experience it. That's That's what loneliness is. And you feel safe and secure when you have it, that somebody knows you and loves you and has your back. We yearn for a romantic connection with someone in the relationship of marriage. We, de- we desire relationship with the children that we will have, right? We are relational beings. It's deeply hardwired into who we are. But here's the reality. None of our earthly relationships are big enough or strong enough or good enough to fill the eternity-sized hole for relationship that we have in our hearts. This is one of the reasons that relationships can be so devastating to us. Because God made us with this eternity-sized hole in our hearts, and we, we hope, like desperately, that another finite being is going to be able to fill that eternity-sized hole. And it never works. And so we feel disappointed. We feel abandoned. We feel destitute when we pushed all of our chips in on another person and they let us down. We were asking them to do a job they were never powerful enough to do. We were asking them to fill a hole that they were never big enough to fill. We were asking them to satisfy us in a way that they are utterly incapable, incapable of doing. We, they can't do it. And that, that's why it's so painful. Some of you have felt the pain of those relationships. You've, you've been abused or abandoned. You've been betrayed. You've been wounded. You've been hurt. And if you were hoping that that other person would be your ultimate security, whether it was a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you were hoping like, man, this is it, and then they hurt you, you've, you've felt, you've carried the burden of that frustration and that loss and that grief and that disappointment. But here's the reality that we find in this text that 
God not only made the eternity-sized hole in our hearts, but he made it so that he himself could fill it. It's, it's almost as if God was imprinting into the heart of every human being this magnetic attraction, this longing that would only ever be satisfied when it led us back to him, the one who created it in the first place. That's why Augustine said this really famous quote when he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is such a beautiful theological truth for us to dwell on for a moment, that we were made for relationship with God, that God created us to enjoy relationship with him. There's this really famous theological education tool. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of questions and answers that are intended to communicate the basics of theology. And the very first question is this, what is the chief end of man? Which is asking, why does mankind exist? What is their purpose? What are they for? Why are you and I here? And the answer that is provided is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. (laughs) I think that is a I think that's an accurate answer because I believe it is a biblical answer. That the reason we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I don't know what your conception of God is as you come into Hume this weekend and you're thinking about God and you're hearing from the word of God, but I've got good news for you. God wants to be in relationship with you. God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he is inviting you to enjoy relationship with him. Not to begrudgingly submit to relationship with him, not to be like, oh, well, you know, God made me, so I guess I owe him relationship and I have to. God made you to enjoy relationship with him. So if you can think for a moment about the joy that you have in your best earthly relationships, Think about the best relationship with you that you have with a friend or a mom or a dad or a classmate or someone from church or a youth pastor or a counselor. Think about the best relationship you have and all of the joy that that brings. And then amplify it by 10 million times because you have access to relationship with the one who made relationships. You have access to relationship with the source of all good, the creator and sustainer of all things, the holy and majestic and beautiful triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who desires to be in relationship with you. You were made by an eternal God, and you were made with an eternal longing, and that longing is for eternal relationship. Now, this is all, this is all really good news up until this point. But what we have to remember is that the message that we heard last night has to come to bear on this message now. Because if you'll remember last night when we talked about sin, we, we realized that sin is this rebellion against God that rejects his authority and it disobeys his commands and it contradicts his design. It, it dishonors his glory. And what sin does is it breaks our relationship with God. The relationship that God made us for, 
the relationship that all of us ache for in our hearts, the eternity-sized hole that can only be filled by relationship with the one who made us, that relationship is shattered by sin. That is, in fact, what the Bible means when it says what we talked about last night, that the wages of sin is death. Death is ultimately separation from the source of all life, which is God himself. And so we're, we're left in this place as we realize the weight and gravity of our sin and what sin has produced, which is a broken relationship with God. We find ourselves in this place where something has to be done in order to close the gap and repair the relationship. And the question is, what can be done? What can be done? And this, my friends, is where the grace of God is such good news. Because if you're like me, and I'm like, okay, something is broken, just let me fix it. Anyone like me? Like anyone like a solution-minded problem solver with a can-do attitude? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out yourself, watch a YouTube video tutorial. Amen. You know what I'm talking about? How, how millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha, how they learn everything that ever existed, YouTube. It's like, I'm going to find a way, at this point, I realize I was made for a relationship with God, but my relationship with God is broken. I ask myself instantly, what can I do to fix it? How can I make it right? You know, if I, if I hurt my wife, Rachel, if I offend her, if I say something that's hurtful to her, I'm instantly thinking, like, I got to make this right. I got to apologize. I got to buy flowers. I got to wash the dishes. I got to do nice stuff. I got to make it right. And this is our instinct in our relationship with God is we want to work and we want to do and we want to try and we want to check the boxes and we want to be good enough for God so that he will love us and we can make up for all of our sin. But the problem is our, our sin is such a big debt and God is such a holy God that there's nothing we can do to make it right with him. There's no apology we can issue. There's no gift we can buy. There's no box we can check. There's nothing that we can do. But the best news of all time is that God has done everything that needed to be done. And he has done it through his son, Jesus Christ. He's done all of the work that was required for us to be reconciled to him. You see, because we were created by an eternal God, but we are finite creatures. And that means that the gap that exists between an eternal, holy God and finite, sinful creatures, that gap is an infinite gap. And so it requires an infinitely powerful work to bridge it. And that's what makes the arrival and the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so important because it is the infinitely powerful work that was provided for you and me to be made right with an infinitely holy God. And this is what God has done to bridge the gap between his infinity and our finite weakness is he sent his son, Jesus. This is a verse that you have surely heard if you've spent any time around the church, but it is altogether appropriate at the conclusion of this message. It's John 3.16. Why did God do this? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Motivated by love, God sent his one and only son who had existed in perfect fellowship with him for all time and eternity as the second person of the Trinity, this God of love sent his son, Jesus, to leave the comfort and glory of heaven, to take on human flesh, to become like the very people that he created, to subject himself to brokenness and to weakness and to betrayal and hardship, And he did it so that he could embark upon a rescue mission for broken sinners like you and me. The way that he rescued us is that he lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God, the law that we had broken in our sin and the law that we could never fulfill on our own moral strength. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled the righteous requirement of God. And then with all of his perfection and all of his righteousness, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and he was crucified there, not only dying an agonizing, bloody, physical death, but way more significantly than that, he had laid upon his shoulders the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I had earned for our sin. So as Jesus Christ is on that cross, he's not there to pay for his own sin. He is there for, he's there to pay for the sin of people like you and me. He goes there as a substitute, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he died, giving up his life, having borne the full weight of the wrath of God. But in God's miracle working power, he did not stay dead. Death could not hold him. He burst forth from the grave in resurrection, life, and power, conquering the curse of sin and offering what John 3.16 says is the gift of eternal life to anyone from anywhere who would turn away from their sin, place their faith in him, and trust him alone for salvation. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, that God has taken lost and broken sinners who were dead in their sin and separated from him in relationship, and he's given his son to live, die, and rise again so that they could be brought back into relationship with him and enjoy the gift of eternal life. That is good news, that we were made by an eternal God And we were made with this eternal longing that can only be satisfied by the eternal relationship, the eternal life that comes to us when we receive the finished work of Jesus. Now you might be asking, well, what does that look like for me? Nick, that sounds great, but what you're describing, it feels very far away from me. What what does it mean for me? Well, I think there's There's probably two categories of people in this room. One category of people is people either who are hearing this message for the very first time 
And praise God, I'm so glad that you're here and that you, you have the opportunity to hear this good news that God loves you and sent his son to save you. And if that's you, if you're in that category, if you have never heard this message before or you have heard it before but never responded to it, the invitation to you is for the very first time to repent and believe. And here's simply what those words mean, to repent is to turn away from the sin that separates me from God. And to believe is to receive by faith the relationship that God offers. To come to faith in Christ requires both a turning away from sin in repentance and a turning to God in faith. And so if you are hearing this message for the very first time or you have never responded to it, I'm, I'm inviting you. In fact, I am pleading with you tonight not to delay another day, to turn away from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus. But there's likely a second category in the room. Those of you who have heard this message, maybe you've even heard it many times. And so you're sitting here thinking like, well, this is the, this is the point in the message where I tune out because I made that decision a long time ago. But let me just, let me chat with you for a second. God made you for a relationship with him. And by his grace, he's actually presented this message to you before and you've responded to it. The question I want to ask you tonight is are you living like relationship with God is actually the precious gift that his word says it is. If you've responded to this offer of eternal life before and you are now in relationship with God, my question to you is what does that relationship look like? Do you spend most of your life actually ignoring God and disobeying God and rejecting God? while trying to still say that you know God and believe in God because you accepted this offer a long time ago, I would just encourage you and invite you tonight to reassess and to re-engage in the relationship that God wants to have with you. He loves you like a father loves his child, and he wants to be involved in your life. And so whether you need to respond for the very first time to this offer of salvation, this offer of relationship with God for the first time ever, please respond in repentance and faith. And if you already have a relationship with God, I'm asking you to respond in what? In repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to say, God, I want to walk in the relationship that you've already established with me. And I don't know about you, but I find myself, when I contemplate these realities, I find myself so thankful for a God who cares about relationship, a God who sees me and knows me and loves me and wants to be in relationship with me. I hope that you are encouraged tonight as you've been reminded or taught for the very first time that the God of eternity, he made you, but he made you with a longing for eternal relationship that only he can satisfy. Would you join me for just a moment in praying? And I'm going to ask you, I'm actually going to give you a, a time to respond as we pray together now. Let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you love us. Thank you, God, that you have not abandoned us. 
you, you, you have every right in the world in reaction to our sin to just leave us alone and to let us fend for ourselves. But God, I am so thankful that you have not left us. You have reached out to us. You've pursued us. You've sent your own son for us. And so God, I pray tonight that we would receive the relationship that you are offering, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, God, would we engage in relationship with you? Would we turn away in repentance from the things that hurt your heart, the things that disobey your law, the things that offend your honor and your glory? Would we turn away from those things and would we embrace you? Would we trust you and obey you and walk with you and believe what you say about yourself and God, would we experience the deep joy and the total freedom of being in relationship with the God who made us? Lord, we need you for this. And so right now, as we pray, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to give you an opportunity. If you have never been in relationship with Jesus, if this is the first time you're hearing the gospel or if you have never responded to it and you want to receive the relationship that God is offering to you right now, would you just do me a favor and raise your hand so that I can pray for you? Would you raise it up high for just a moment? If you want to receive Christ for the very first time, would you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Thank you. Anyone else? You want to receive relationship with God for the very first time? Praise the Lord. Thanks. I'm going I'm to pray for you guys. You can put your hands down. Now, still with your eyes closed as we're praying together, if you are in relationship with God or a long time ago, sometime in the past you made a decision that you wanted to receive relationship with God, but you know you need to re-engage in that relationship. You need to walk away from some sin and you need to trust God again and walk with him if you want to re-engage in your relationship with the Lord, would you raise your hand so that I can pray for you? Would you raise it up high? I want to re-engage in my relationship with Jesus. Raise it up high. Amen. Amen. Okay, you go ahead and put your hands down. God, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you're moving in this room and in our hearts. We need you to convict us of our sin and lead us to repentance and give us the gift of faith. And so, God, I pray for those who raised their hands and said that they wanted to trust you for the very first time. God, would you, would you bless them by surrounding them with people who love them, by showing them your word, by helping them to feel and sense and know your love? Would you bring them into relationship with you? And God, for those who say, I want to re-engage in my relationship, would you help them, God, to humble themselves, to swallow their pride, and to say, God, I need you again. God, thank you for your patience. I have run away from you, and I have disobeyed you a thousand times, and you have been waiting on the other side a thousand and one times with your love. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. Thank you that you have given us hope in this life and beyond. Thank you that even death, not death, not suffering, not pain, not evil, that none of it can touch us if we are safe in relationship with the God who made us. Help us to experience the freedom and the joy that only you offer and help us to celebrate the living hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for all of these things, and we pray them all in Jesus' name. Amen.